Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Jones with The Secret Life of Neurohospitalist. For this episode, my colleague Dr. Reed Taylor and I had an informal conversation around what he called sequential management of patients, the process of handing over patient care from one doc to another. It's an interesting concept, really, when you think about it, and somewhat divergent from the more traditional style of medicine where a patient-provider relationship with trust is established. In the hospital, the patient's trust has to be more in the system. They could have one provider during the day, and then, if some unfortunate clinical decline occurs in the night or even the next day, a dreaded post-thrombolytic hemorrhage, for example, a different provider takes over. And this is a somewhat unique aspect of hospitalist work. When you leave, you're truly off. If some clinical decision you make goes wrong, someone else will be left to clean it up, even though you may be sweating about it from afar. As I've said in other podcasts, I think this is also a real strength of a group model, sharing the responsibility of delivering high standard of care with other smart, dedicated colleagues helps curtail aberrant or sloppy practices from developing. And this model is built around the assumption that the patient's medical needs are somewhat standardizable, that one doc will practice similarly as another, and that each delivers a consistent healthcare product. In our small group of seven docs and five APPs, it works because of frequent review and communication about what we do and how. And when things change in neurology, as they always do, for example, with extending the window for thrombolysis out longer than 4.5 hours in line with the wake up and extend trials, we consider it and agree to it collectively before changing practices. And most often, new evidence is the driver of major changes to clinical practices. But as Dr. Taylor aptly phrased it, worshiping at the feet of evidence-based medicine often leaves you empty-handed for many of the decisions you have to make as a clinician. Many, if not most, of the decisions we're asked to make are not reached through solid evidence, particularly when the cases are atypical or challenging diagnostically, but more from an understanding of the patient's presentation, which is often something in flux. Sometimes some new piece of information comes to light, that the patient had stopped taking all their meds or had been drinking more than anyone knew, etc., etc., which can redirect the initial narrative set upon by another provider. And it's definitely challenging to change course midstream, especially when some trust and understanding has developed between the patient and another provider who was there before you. I enjoyed pondering these and other issues around the shared care of the patient in the hospital system with Dr. Taylor and hope you will too. One of the things that I think about when we admit patients to the hospital is how there's three phases, and one is the diagnostic phase, and then there's sort of the therapeutic phase, and then there's the disposition phase. And each one of those I've got in my mind is a collaborative process between the patient and the doctor and the team and the and the family. And one of the hardest things about admitting somebody to the hospital is is the shift work nature of things. And so when I admit somebody at night, I try to make a, a, a point of saying, uh, I'm Dr. Taylor, I'm admitting you tonight. I, I, I work until seven in the morning and somebody else is going to be coming on. Don't be surprised to see somebody else because as we all know, when you get sick in the hospital, you you know come in and you immediately see somebody and you hope you are forming some relationship and bond. And that first person that sees the patient is got so much power because if you write down something in the chart and the person comes on the next day, whoever the team member is, and they read through the note, you're hopefully giving them some clues 
which ideally are unbiased, but in reality, you are, are leading the person on a pathway that you think that you've started out. Uh, perhaps you don't have any idea what's going on and you're just writing some differential diagnosis, but otherwise you, you are you know, saying, and, and maybe the diagnostic phase is you scan them and they got an intracerebral hemorrhage and it's clear. But there are certain types of patients like autoimmune disorders or a question of should you do some test that the patient may or may not be fond of, and I'll, I'll pick as an example a spinal tap. Maybe the patient's thinking, I really don't want to have one, or I only want to have one after you do these things. And it may be, if, be for a condition that you're saying, oh yeah, you, you're, you need a spinal tap. Or maybe you're just thinking, well, maybe they don't need a spinal tap, but the patient is, you know, you think you're going down a pathway. And then, then the next day somebody comes on and they're picking up information and trying to decide what to do. Uh, or you work for a week with somebody and you're working through some sort of process and then you've got to leave and somebody else comes on and just takes it in a completely different direction. Hopefully a better direction. But uh, it can be very helpful to have fresh eyes. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in some cases, you're kind of relieved that, you know, somebody else is going to be coming around to say, it's like you can't really write that in the chart like, hey, man, if this doesn't make sense to you, change it up. Right. I have no idea what's going on here, and I hope you do. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, and that I agree. Sometimes I'm very relieved that somebody else is coming on because I think I don't really know what's going on. And I'm glad that somebody and I'll even say to the, you know, as you're, you're saying your goodbyes, you're, you're setting the stage for this next person is going to go over everything. And I hope they can put it together better than we have so far or something like that. But when the patient has had a stroke and they and you're considering starting anticoagulation or they've got some condition that you may need to anticoagulate and you're, the family is concerned, we don't really want to anticoagulate. We want to, uh, you know, think about it or, you know, somebody else got anticoagulated and they didn't, you know, they bled to death. And then the next person comes on and just starts the anticoagulation because they think obviously you anticoagulate right. for this situation. Then, and I, I find that a challenge. I feel like you are, you know, sequential management, which is both a blessing, as you said, because you need fresh eyes, but it can be a curse. Right. Um, because you establish these expectations and understandings with people that don't necessarily, you know, translate to the next person. And I like what you're saying about the phase of, of cares too, like the diagnostic phase the therapeutic phase and the disposition phase. And then, you know, I find that sometimes when you're coming in on the Monday of a week or something and you're coming in sort of to say the ICU and generally speaking, that's the diagnostic phase. Right. Where in the beginning, you've just gotten diagnosed or stroke. And then the family's kind of like, well, what happens now? And sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know. Have you ever seen, you know, has he been in here yet? Right. I don't know. Turns out they've been in there for a few days and, you know, it kind of can be just, disorienting when you're just not in the same phase with them does that happen it, to you sometimes? of course it takes time to yeah. develop some information and knowledge of the patient and sometimes you're going along and you if the patient's been in the hospital for six days and you realize oh they're on this because actually in you know 1985 they had hodgkin's <laughs> lymphoma and they got irradiated and that's why this looks like that but it's it's not clear and i think the the concept of the checkout um, 
and, and what information should be shared. And, and we can have massive services and, and to think, yes, I'm checking out this patient and I'm giving you every little detail that might help you. It could take a very long time. Um, and so we're hoping that our notations serve as uh, a roadmap for what's going on and what should happen. And, and sometimes it's very clear because you happen to read it the right way. Other times I've gone along and like I said, I've realized, oh, the reason that they don't want to go home is the patient lives, you know, with a, you know, an impaired family member that really can't take care of them. That's why they have no interest in going home. So that sequential management, you know, once you know that, you're like, oh yeah, that's that colors everything, but it's not always so obvious. And I think we are, that is a, a disservice of the of the model that we've moved to with hospitalists in general and and you know you get admitted to the hospital you don't see your own doctor if you've got a cardiologist that's known you for decades but you get admitted and the rounding team does not include that person then they may not know some essential detail of your your history and i just find that a challenge you know we talk about even in our group having 80 percent of similar practice patterns I mean, sometimes it can be even along those lines, like the night person comes on, has to follow up a scan from a stroke. And, you know, it, we don't necessarily say, oh, if it, as long as there's no hemorrhage, start aspirin, Flavix, and Lovenox, you know, and move them out of the unit. It's just sort of understood, like check the scan and then do whatever's next. And even something like that, that's pretty simple little passing on for the night shift can sometimes be a little bit complicated. Like, I don't know, is it aspirin, Flavix, what were they on? Uh, you know, what's their stroke scale? Um, you know, <laughs> can they can they swallow? Do they can have they a feeding swallow? tube? Yeah, there's so are you putting something in there? You know, you're trying to do something that is that is uh, protocolized, but yet there are so many things about it. Yeah. And I, I think you know the other issue, and and we all do this. You don't have to have even different doctors, but sometimes you're thinking to yourself we could do two or three things. And as you're talking to the family and the patient, you, you see by their body language, the questions they ask, the, the temperature of the room, if you will, that this is what they are thinking. They don't necessarily immediately uh, jump onto it, but you just know, and you find yourself going down a path and you realize that you're making a choice that may be one of several potentially you know viable choices and then somebody else might do something different you definitely get a different feeling looking at the chart electronically right and that's what i mean by remotely like just reviewing things you know you'll often think oh i i know what i'm going to do when i go in the room and then you go in the room and you get a completely different right as you're talking to them yes as yeah. you're talking to them and you realize this is not right and you are make and so there are so many things that are impossible to put in a note sometimes i have the impression yes i'm talking about these patients and we're going to do a you know muscle biopsy and we're going to do this or we're not going to do those things and then they come on the next day some other doctor and they say man it's a good thing that dr jones came along because dr taylor wasn't doing crap he wasn't <laughs> doing anything and we're glad that you are taking the bull by the horn or whatever the right analogy is. I, I think that is a challenge because I would like to think we are providing 
80% is the number that we have sort of agreed on. We're doing things in an 80% similar fashion, but the timing of things, you know, we may all agree, yes, this patient needs anticoagulation, but when do you do it? Yeah. Um, or Especially yes. Especially if there's a little bit of hemorrhage. Yeah, there's a little bit of hemorrhage yeah. or this stroke is a little bit big, or maybe the patient's got a DVT. Uh, you know, we yeah. I've had patients recently that had a, a cerebral sinus thrombosis and uh, she was complaining of, you know, she kept coughing and we thought she'd been intubated to have some procedure done and they kept saying, well, it's from this and we're not starting anticoagulation because we're worried about some other problem while she also had a PE, which made it more clear that she needed to be anticoagulated. So different people might see things in a different way. Although I would like to just think, yes, that's the nature of doing this and we're going to get new information and, so, and that new information should make us smarter. There is some aspect of patient interaction that is intuitive that doesn't always come out uh, right. in the notes and that you're not making a decision based on some, you know, if their protein is 55, you're going to start immune globulin. If it's not, you're going to, I mean, it's it's more nuanced than that. And I think that's part of the challenge of sequential management. Another thing that I keep thinking about, Jenny, and I've been wanting to say this to you for a long time, is that we often find ourselves worshiping at the feet of evidence-based medicine. This is how we're going to do something. And everybody knows evidence-based medicine is the gold standard. But I think about what some people would call folklore medicine. It's not evidence-based, nobody's ever studied it, but there's so many things that we do every day that we're, we are saying, right. oh, this is just the way I do it. I was told a way to break status migranosis when I was a, a resident by my chief resident. They said, you give them Thorazine, it's a massive amount, we don't need to go over here, but I've used a variation of that for years and it really works the way I was originally yeah. told is I was clearly wet behind the ears and sweating little uh, resident was you give them a shot of Thorazine IM 50 milligrams and you go check them on them 30 minutes later and if they're still having a problem 50 milligrams more in 30 minutes and then you check on them again and if you're doing it 50 milligrams more IM and I'm hearing all this and I'm, I'm shakily writing it down. actually giving the shot yourself? I'm impressed that you would think that I would be able to do that, but only the nursing staff could do that. Um, but I mean, we used to do central. I know, I know. Arterial line. No, at the time you'd be writing an order, and I'm sure the nurses were thinking to themselves, "What is this jerk doing coming out every 30 minutes and telling us to get more medicine?" But of course, by the end of you know 150 or 200 milligrams of Thorazine, yeah. the patient is nearly you know they're somnolent. <laughs> But they usually are not complaining of headache. Yeah. And so I then, like th for then you admit them to the hospital yeah. because this would be in the ED. And then you give them that dose. You divide it into thirds and you give them that PO for three days or something like uh -huh. this. And I had written all this down. It's a stepwise amount and you make the patient stop. Well, now I give it, give the patient IV Thorazine. You know, I, I give a large amount or composine, which is also, mm -hmm. you know, used. If the patient, you know, if you don't get them better with one 10 milligram dose of composine, say, I'll say, you know, give them another one, give them more. There's science behind it. There's various dopamine, you know, yeah. uh, uh, receptors that you're blocking with this. It's actually doing something. But my point is, 
folklore medicine, which most people would consider that a pejorative term, but the majority of things we do is because somebody that I'm going to say was clearly smarter than I was at the time told me this is what I should do, so I do it. And, and maybe it all initially stems from intuition sometimes, you know, or experience with... Experience, whatever you know, the right word is. Yeah. I remember friends talking about, you know, especially here in Asheville and all the microbiomes and like fermented food diets and what have you for so long. And then all of a sudden now it's like the gut biome. Your gut biome is critical. Is everything right. And you weren't paying attention to uh -huh, it up until now. Uh -huh. Well, those kinds of things that we do, when you look at, you know, the internal biases we have, which is the patients had migraines, speaking of them, and, you know, now they've got hemiplegia and it's probably migraine because they're, you know, only 28, but yet every once in a while, those are strokes. Yeah. Or, you know, some other thing that that is, you know, some bias that we have against the, the appropriate you know, therapy, the confirmation biases that we all have. Well, that's why I was saying the person who admits the patient to the hospital has amazing power because sometimes you'll read in the chart, the patient's right arm became stiff and then they dropped the phone and then this happened and you're thinking, wow, that sounds like a seizure. And then yeah. you go to the patient and you're kind of two days go by and you happen to be sitting at their bedside and you're chatting and then you're asking them about it and you say, oh yeah, I remember when you're, and the patient goes, that didn't happen. Right. You know, because, right. but, but it's written down, right. the black and white notation gives it a power that is artificially more important than, because most of the time, I'm sad to say, I am not repeating the entire H&P. But when you do repeat the H&P, and you do go over things that are happening to the patient, and you realize, wow, I'm really, you know, this is some insight right. that I wasn't getting before. And sometimes mm -hmm. the patients will want to keep reiterating things and I'll often kind of think to myself, I know, I know, I read it, I know, like, don't say it. But then they'll say something like, yeah, I got this, you know, smell like something was burning. And you're like, oh, what, now what? <laughs> right, right. You know? or, when somebody's or trying to say what's wrong and you're, and yeah. they only, when you drop an additional piece of information that is is valuable, because we've all had patients tell you something and they'll say, I just want to make sure you know everything. Yeah. And it's embarrassing to admit, but I've often taken, yeah, I do need to know everything, but I don't really, this, this that you're telling me is important to you, but not really appropriate to this situation. But every once in a while, exactly as you say, it will be important to the yeah. situation. And we like, have... Oh, wait, when did you have radiation <laughs> Right, right. This vasculopathy doesn't make any sense unless you've had radiation to your neck. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I had radiation to my neck. And, you know, I think the thing the thing about the um, practicing, like like we were saying, 80% trying to be like where you get the 80% of the patients or 80% of their care would be uniform between any of us. But then, of course, there's going to be discrepancies, and that is ultimately based in, like, medicine, you know, evidence-based medicine, we would hope. But... I think I saw a study some years ago about like what percentage of actually what we do it would actually be truly referable to any evidence because most of the even for the aspirin and plavix and stuff like that 
it wouldn't fit the trial criteria. Of course. We're already practicing outside of that, you know. Oh, I think we, if you do randomized controlled trials, which would be to be the gold standard, you the very fact that those things are done have to be so narrowly yes. defined yeah. that you're not going to get pregnant women. Forget that. And you um, have to extrapolate into older populations right. and are in Or there. younger populations. Yeah, yeah. And so I think we have to not worship at the feet of evidence-based medicine. And, and although protocol-based medicine is very valuable, and there are lots of to me, when somebody says, are we doing 80% the same way, we've got some well-defined secondary stroke prevention strategies, and we should be following those. But there are cases when you think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm doing something different. And that, I guess, is the time you should write down, this is why I'm doing it differently. Right. And this is the reason why. Or because anticoagulation, which we've mentioned several times, has got particular risks when you are thinking of starting anticoagulation, I always try to say, I recognize, you know, there is risk in this. The patient is aware of the risk. We're doing this one. We're starting now, even though there's some risk of hemorrhagic conversion because right. of this reason. It's hard to think you are giving somebody true informed consent because most of the time in the hospital, we're dealing with urgent situations and we are trying to discuss what needs to be done when people are sick. If they've had a stroke, they've got brain damage. Uh, they are anxious because they're in the hospital. We are trying to avoid jargon as much as we can, but uh, I'm sure it creeps in more than we want it to. I am sure. And, and let me ask you this along those lines. Give me your spiel. Like the person's on the CAT scan table. They have a negative CT. They're two hours in. You're going to treat them. What do you say to them? There's no family. You can't reach them on the phone. Right. They can understand you. Most of the time, I've usually met the patient for a few minutes before. And so I'll come in and say, it's Dr. Taylor again. I just want you to know, we've looked at your scan. I don't see any bleeding or anything. And this weakness that you came in with, I agree with you. It looks like a stroke. We've got some medicine that we use to try to treat patients with stroke. It's called a thrombolytic. It's a medicine that dissolves a blood clot. It's got some risks, but we have known that it reduces the risk of uh, overall impairment after somebody's had a stroke. And I think you're a candidate for it. I don't see any obvious problems in your case, and I think it's worth the risk. I usually do not talk about there's X percent risk of this, or you know, I think, are uh, the benefits outweigh the risks uh, to that? Now, if the patient has got some thing that I think puts them outside of the the realm of normal because of time constraints or because they've previously had a problem or yeah. something else, then I might say, you know, blood your risk is, yeah, or something yeah. like that. I might say we got to treat your blood pressure, or do something else, and that that is my. But you're you know, not giving them numbers. I mean, that's what I wonder sometimes I'll occasionally say. We know there's about a 6 to 7% chance of hemorrhage. And I'm just thinking, what is that? I say, you know, hemorrhage anywhere. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what would that mean? I know. What would that mean to a patient? Like, how are they supposed to judge that? And I, I think that thrombolytics, we can say, are, you know, in the, in the right circumstances, the, the risk is, is worth it and is relatively low. I never have seen like, well, that was completely, you know, 
irresponsible or, or completely nothing that I can understand how that happened. You know, that's the good thing. I mean, we're a good group in terms of that, like we've said, meetings and keeping ourselves sort of practicing in the same format for the most part so that it's not usually something you fully can't understand. Well, I think if I was part of a group that had 45 people, and you thought, I don't even know this person. Yeah. And you come along and something has happened. And because you are under the gun, being bombarded, being the person questioned by distraught family members who may, maybe the, the person's been in the hospital for five days and they know all about the ins and outs. And you're just sort of going there to say, you know, I'm sorry, they just had a cardiac arrest and died. And they're upset about some other thing you know, you find yourself saying, uh, you know, I really need to prepare for this. And, you know, how do you, how do you, you can't say, I got to go over this chart for the next four hours so I can come talk to you. Kind of catch up with everything that's happened. Yes. Or sometimes you get just the story, the two sentences from the nurse, like the family's arrived and they just were hoping you could come give an update. You look at the day's progress note and get like the gestalt. And then you go in and the family asks something like, well, was this related to the you know, X, Y, Z, and... Right, you got a COVID vaccine vaccine three yeah. days ago, <laughs> yeah. um, and it's related to that, or some other thing, yeah, yeah. some other piece of information, and, and because everybody's been getting COVID vaccines, we're aware of that, but it may be some other kind of, yeah. you know, Dr. Yeah. So-and-so just started them on, you know, the warfarin right. three days ago, and you look through the chart, and you think, well, there's no, I can't find any mention of that right. in here. Or if they've been here for, you know, seven days, and maybe it was in there somewhere, right. somebody's note. Yes, know. I think that is, that that part of sequential medical care, delivering bad news, deciding when you're doing the right thing, or thinking that you are on the same pathway as the family because I'm sure they're, we're bonded. They really like me. And really they're thinking, we're, you know, yes, you're nice enough, but what we really want is what's best for my mom. And when Dr. Jones came on, the way she explained it, it made it seem like this is the best thing. So we're doing something that you didn't even want to do. Right. So when you come back on two nights later and you look through the chart, you see they've gone down a pathway that's completely different than what you were expecting. And you have to be, you know, you have to take that as a learning experience if you possibly can. You know, that that is something that like when doing nothing, I was going to say, is often the right thing. Right. right? I was talking about a case where I'm kind of thinking I basically need to just tell these people, look, can we just give it another day? That is really hard to say, right? Families don't want to say like, well, they just said, wait another day. But it's like, maybe it's delirium. The point is, you sometimes just do have this pressure to do something, and sometimes you should do nothing. And that is impossible so often in the hospital, right? People are like, what's the plan? What's the plan? Where are they going? What's the there, plan? There is a time crunch that's completely different in, in Especially the hospital. Especially for, like, say, um, neuropathy, right? A alcoholic, yeah. nutritionally deprived. Is it AIDP? And it's like, probably not. But, okay, let's get the LP, let's see, you know, let's start IVIG, <laughs> you know. When I started out in neurology, there was no such thing as, you know, a perineoplastic syndrome, or if there was, it was so, you know, a cigar-smoking, uh, yeah. you know, guy sitting in their office, yeah. or pipe-smoking yeah, yeah. pipe neurologist, yeah. um, if you even thought of that. Now, it's, you know, comes up every other day when you're seeing yeah. somebody, and if you think about it, 
the very fact that you're thinking and drawing labs and doing something sort of implies, well, if you think that's what this is, the person should probably be on steroids and they should probably be doing immune globulin. And without a doubt, cases in my career that I had a patient that had that, that I didn't know that's what it was. Yeah. I don't think that realization and awareness on my part has not changed to, well, every time I see somebody who looks at me cross-eyed, I'm going to give them steroids because most of them probably aren't that. Right. I feel like we used to see ADEM, and I feel like that is now press. Is that what we used to call? I, I don't I mean, think... why don't we ever see ADEM anymore? Well, it's a, it's a condition of supposedly somewhat younger people, but yes, I agree. Press is an example of something that in the first part of my career, nobody even heard of press. It didn't even exist. And I wonder if we were seeing that as ADEM. I mean, it could look like that. Well, I think even when MRI scans were done, you know, press has got a certain distribution right. that I don't think you necessarily see in AEM. But I agree that we're not, I don't feel like that is the same. Yeah, things have changed. Like since even you and I have been working here, and getting everybody to change the same way when something new comes up, like press and management of it, or blood pressure management and ICH and things, like everybody has to be doing it similarly. We've got to be all practicing in a similar way. That's where you know folklore medical management comes in. Somebody said, this is the kind of the way we do things for the last five cases. I did this and they turned out okay. And the next thing you know, you're advising some young resident how they do it. I think there's plenty of things that we do that work. And fortunately for us, the human body is so resilient. Some of the things that we do, you know, you can get people better if you just, you know, letting, you know, we're just observing you. What are we doing right now? Oh, well, there's plenty of times when you're trying to explain, you know, when it comes to sequential medicine and they come on the first day and, and they're saying, Dr. Jones, we were working with Dr. Taylor and he didn't make any sense. Explain what happened. And you can go over, well, you don't have cancer and you don't have this and you don't have and you don't have that. On the one hand, you've crossed off a lot of things on the differential diagnosis. On the other hand, the interpretation of the savvy patient would be, you don't know what's wrong right, with me. Right. And so uh, that is so, you know, that is that is the nature of a short-term relationship with a patient. <laughs> yeah. You are trying to figure out how to help them and move them on to the next step. And it can be very frustrating when you say, we've completed a workup and we know that you've got a problem, but we don't know what else to do. And we've all gone through the workup where you say, we've looked for the common things. We've a common presentation of a common thing, then yeah. an uncommon presentation of a common thing, then a common presentation of an uncommon thing, then an uncommon presentation of an uncommon thing, which I will say in, <laughs> in that last category, I probably just missed those. Yeah. I don't think I figured that out. Yeah, that's true. That's a part of it, too. I agree. I, I, I have that same feeling. Like, if my partners weren't thinking that, why am I? Yes. Or, yeah. you know, and another thing that we run into is with sequential management is family may say, I've seen three or four different neurologists, and I start thinking, should, should my family member be sent to Vanderbilt or the Mayo Clinic or Duke or some other place that we have available to us? And I have tried to, to be not upset when somebody mentions that because it's a no-lose proposition. If they go to Duke and they say, you know, the exact same thing that we've said, then I get to say, 
they're not any smarter than we are. On the other hand, if they go to Duke and they say, you know, here's a different way of doing it and it helps the patient, I can say that's the whole point. So right. it's, it's nice to have that as your out, but it can be really hard to say because it's a big deal to send somebody somewhere oh, yeah. else. It's not an easy thing. And they and there's you, much follow-up. They're going to get followed up here. Where's the follow-up going to be? Yeah. What's going to happen? Where are they going? Why are you doing it? Is it truly a situation that they have some expertise that we don't have and sometimes the answer to that is absolutely yeah. other times the answer is i don't know that they're going to do anything different this i think we've done all the things we can do yeah. we can send the information and talk about that with the people over there but it's it's a um it's a hard thing because families are and patients could be desperate to hear some better news than what we're delivering yeah. how do we how do we deal with that with sequential management if you've gone in and told them that we're going to figure this out, and then I come in and say, you know, sometimes we just don't get to <laughs> we, we don't like coincidences. We don't like things that have no re Everything should have a reason when the reality is things don't have a reason. But when you say we're not sure what does this, that is, that is a major problem in life. Yeah. I'd like to thank my colleague, Dr. Reed Taylor, for that thoughtful conversation around the sequential management of patients. It was a good one to end on for the summer season, where travel plans and kids out of school can challenge any continuity from day to day, both at work and home. And along those lines, we're planning a short summer hiatus here with the podcast. We'll be back in a month or so with more conversations about neurohospitalist work. Until then, if you have comments or questions or suggestions, please email us at secretlifeneuro at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, follow, and share us. See you next time.